Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. BBC's Nick Robinson threatens to cut interview short over Tory broken promises. BBC presenter Nick Robinson threatened to cut an interview with Vaccines Minister Nadim Zawi after the top Tory repeatedly refused to say why the government was breaking promises to voters on tax hikes. Boris Johnson pledged at the 2019 general election that the Conservatives would not raise income tax, national insurance or VAT. The Prime Minister also vowed to stand by the pensions triple lock, which was a guarantee that pensions would rise in line with inflation, average wages, or 2.5%, whichever was the highest. But ministers will this afternoon outline plans to smash both promises by raising national insurance from 12% to 13.5% to fund social care, something which could cost a worker on £30,000 around £250 extra per year. Separately, Chancellor Rishi Sunak is expected to scrap the pensions triple lock this year, to prevent a statistical anomaly triggering an 8% state pension rise in April 2022. It follows a year in which Covid has wreaked havoc with the economy and public services. But when Zawi appeared on BBC Radio 4's Today programme, he refused to defend the moves in any way, simply saying listeners must wait for the detail and Robinson almost lost his cool. Here is the exchange. Robinson, just to be clear, the reason you seem to be saying there is a reason to break the PM's word on. His promise on tax is because you need to bail out the NHS, otherwise there would be a very, very big backlog. Is that your explanation to voters about why you said one thing when you ran for election and now you're doing another? Zawi, no, what I'm saying to you is let's wait for the detail. Robinson, no no. Detail is not the point. You're here to talk about the principle. I'm asking you why you said one thing to the electorate and you're now saying another. Zawi, you asked me the question. What I'm saying to you is let's see the detail. I will happily come back on your program. The Chancellor I'm sure will deal with this in his statement as will the Prime Minister. Robinson, I'm not asking about the detail. We don't want to waste your time and frankly I don't want you to waste the listener's time. People are entitled to an answer on a very simple question. Why do conservatives now believe that they have to put taxes up? Let me put a more specific question that your own backbenchers are asking. Why do you believe that a young worker in a care home in Middlesbrough should pay more in tax to subsidise a wealthy pensioner in Surbiton? Zawi, again, it would be I think wrong and unwise for the vaccine minister to stray into the how we pay for reforming social care, which is so in real need of reform, or any other part of the healthcare system. That would be set out. Robinson, I think frankly what we should do is cut this interview short because it's a waste of our time and a waste of ours if you can't address it. The uncovering of enigmatic fossils in the Earth's deepest hole led to its sealing. Deep adventures into the depths. 
There is a peninsula in Russia situated in the enormous country's isolated northwest regions where a crew of scientists has been endlessly burrowing down into the middle of our planet for decades. This plummeting boral's depths go on for more than 40,000 feet. But their intrepid dig would suddenly come to an abrupt end when a startling discovery led to the team needing to frantically seal the huge hole up forever. They ran into something so terrifying that they were forced to abandon their many years of hard work in an instant. People have been digging deep into the earth since we discovered the needed technology, just as we have been soaring into orbit since the 1957 launching of the initial artificial satellite into space. With the advent of private businesses and international space organizations, this progress has made incredible strides. It could very well be that the ground beneath our feet is just as fascinating as the starry sky above our heads, if only we could find safer ways to navigate it. It is said that humans understand space better than we do our own planet's inner contents. Certainly, most people probably know more about our solar system than they do about the underground world. The thought of taking a rocket into the cosmos is more exciting than burrowing into the dark and suffocating Earth. But that doesn't mean that the world's superpowers weren't interested in what lies below. While most of us have a basic understanding of the Cold War's heated space race between the USSR and the United States, how many know about the historical competition to dominate the subterranean realms? It all began towards the end of the 1950s, when two rival teams, one Soviet and one American, commenced putting together a complicated series of experiments aimed at breaking through our planet's crust. The scientists, geologists, and explorers involved were preparing for the adventure of a lifetime. It was believed that the Earth's core was 30 miles deep, with a thick shell leading into the mantle which is the enigmatic deeper layer of the Earth that consists of around 40% of the Earth's bulk. The Soviets were now working fast and hard toward getting their burrowing expedition off the ground, or into it. It was during 1970, on a sunny the 24th of May, that a group of scientists commenced their drilling project down into the Pechensky district ground. This was in the Kola Peninsula area in Russia where a tiny amount of people lived. This meant that they had plenty of space to work in. It was their mission to break through as deeply into Earth's crust as was humanly possible. At the ground base, these enthusiastic Soviet scientists set out to hit a milestone of around 49,000 feet beneath the planet's crust. They were furnished with the most advanced equipment in the USSR to do with mining, which they used to first dig a main chasm from which a range of borals branched off in separate directions. As they were busying themselves with their descent, so too were their American counterparts on the other side of the world. Over in the United States, the Lone Star Producing Company and its dedicated employees got to work in 1974 in Oklahoma's Washita County. They were drilling into the earth in search of oil. The work was not easy, to put it mildly, as the personnel encountered many lethal difficulties and near-death experiences. 
few had even considered that the project was even possible. But their efforts resulted in the establishment of the Bertha Rogers Hole, a hole that measured more than 31,400 feet, which comes to around 6 miles into the planet's surface. This was a pioneering dig this was the deepest that humans had made it into our planet's center. But despite the drillers' best efforts, they were unable to strike black gold. And although the Bertha Rogers Hole would become the deepest one on Earth, there was an even more adventurous mining mission that would take place in 1979. On June 6 of that year, a cola boral known as SG-3 went even further down. Four years later, this hole was deepened to an astonishing 39,000 feet through the planet's coating. Despite its phenomenal depth, its width was just 9 inches. The Kola Peninsula scientists were now satisfied with their record-setting achievement and for the time being took some time off burrowing. The following year saw plenty of other parties taking tours of the jaw-dropping project. Can you imagine looking down into such a hole? But it wouldn't be long before the Russian scientists felt the itch to explore further. A year later, the project recommenced. But this time, it would not go on for very long when a devastating technical issue brought the drilling to a grinding stop. Some obstacle had fallen into the team's path, one which there seemed no way around. That is not to say that the crew gave up hope, however, as the scientists simply returned to a less deep boral measuring 23,000 feet below the Earth's surface and got back to work. By the time 1989 arrived, their efforts had broken their previous record with a 40,230-foot drop, which came to 7.5 miles. The team was inspired, and this now decade-long mission was bound to go on until the end of the 90s where they would break past the 44,000 feet mark. Had they gone too far? To add to their estimated achievements, they were sure that the beginning of 1993 would see them hit the 49,000 feet depth. Ordinary humans had not even been able to imagine what life at this level looked like. What they also didn't know was that underneath the isolated tundra in Russia, one shocking enigma lay waiting for the Soviet crew. It was when the Russian crew was approaching the planet's core that an entirely unforeseen consequence hit the miners. The initial 10,000 feet brought a relatively accurate temperature reading within the boral that the scientists had predicted. That being said, not long past this point, things started getting much, much warmer. As the crew commenced closing in on its goal, the temperatures were reaching a critical level of 180 degrees, 356 degrees Fahrenheit, which was a fearsome 80 degrees C, 176 degrees Fahrenheit, higher than what the scientists had estimated. The scientists were shocked that they were even able to operate at such tremendous heats. This was just the tip of the iceberg, however. These scientists established that the rocky substance of this inferno had a density far lower than the one in their hypotheses. This meant that the fiery temperatures caused the rock to react with odd and erratic results. 
the Cola crew were not about to risk their extremely expensive and irreplaceable gear being destroyed and were heartbreakingly forced to pull out. The year was now 1992, more than two decades into the project. But the scientists would not walk away empty-handed as they made their hasty retreat from the Kola Super Deep Boral, which was the only appropriate name for such a dig. One of the most fascinating things that they unearthed were marine plants fossils. Such natural treasures had been phenomenally preserved after an eternity deep underground. This was especially fascinating given the immeasurable time that such formations had been buried miles beneath the earth and its ancient rocks believed to be aged at more than two billion years. This was just the beginning of their uncovering process, however, as the Kola Superdeep Boral's limits that had pushed the scientists back would yield the most fascinating discoveries. The seismic waves that the professionals were reading before the dig suggested that the rock of the Earth's crust is filled with granite, which transforms into basalt at a four miles depth. Such a process would not be present in the Kola Peninsula. So what exactly had they found? The scientists were amazed that only granite surrounded them, no matter how far they descended. It was then that their opinion that the additions in the seismic waves had been caused by metamorphic changes within the rock, and not a transformation into basalt. This opinion would also turn out to be wrong, however. Incredibly, small rivers were located at these crushing reaches, something that no one could have guessed were down there. The thought of flowing water deep into the planet was unimaginable. Although some excited religious types believed that the biblically described flood had been proven by these underworld rivers, these wonders were thought to have been caused by the immense pressure at these levels cramming the hydrogen atoms and oxygen from the rock. Impermeable rocks formed by the ancient water would then be unable to make their way out. While this discovery might not have been divinely caused, it certainly seemed miraculous to everyone involved. While the Kola Superdeep Boral project was coming to a premature end, the Soviet Union was also on its way out. The year 1995 saw the initiative being conclusively decided. In modern times, this spot is largely closed off as a dangerous site, but keen tourists can visit the most fascinating discoveries of the mission at Zapolyony, a town six miles past the hole. No one has managed to go beyond the Kola crew, making this Boral the king of the artificial holes. People haven't quite given up on reaching our planet's core yet, however. The efforts have now turned to our oceans, where the International Ocean Discovery Program's drilling platforms tirelessly proceed with their scouring of the world underneath the ocean. The experts involved constantly suffer technical malfunctions and supreme temperatures as they carry the torch of their Russian and American predecessors in search of hidden wonders. Whether they will encounter the same catastrophic end that the Russian crew did is up for debate. While many subterranean explorers will try their best to hit the Earth's core, others will trailblaze through other pioneering deep routes such as the two-man submersible that headed off through the freezing Antarctica waters. They were going where no human had ever been before, 
far below the waves close to the South Pole in search of new phenomena. What the two brave souls and their monitoring team found was a mind-blowing peak at a realm beyond our wildest dreams. These intrepid explorers did not simply hop into their submersible one day and decide to go to the next level of adventuring, however. For two years, a heavy load of precise research was put towards establishing the ideal window and position to plunge into the freezing depths. Two years might seem like a long time, but it was a necessary effort, given that we as a species are better aware of our solar system's neighbors than our own home's watery depths. It might sound crazy, but we know more about Mars's barren landscapes than we do about our ocean's floors that extend four miles far beyond our beaches. Let us try to establish the scale of things. The general gap between our planet and Mars spans around 140 million miles. Then the general deepest parts of the seabed measures at a little above 12,000 feet, or almost 2 miles. The distances are incomparable, and yet we have done so little to explore such a relatively tiny length. That is not to say that exploring a place like Antarctica's underside is an easy task. Such projects require some of the brightest minds in the related fields, tons of funding, and a lot of time. To begin with, the explorers were tasked with establishing the safest and most efficient location to begin the drop. Finally, a place named Iceberg Alley was chosen. This might sound like a humorous name, but this area had a great reason to come to be known as such. This alley makes up a channel bordering the frosty peninsula's most north-reaching areas. This spread of ocean is ringed by large hunks of moving ice, where slabs of ice as big as cars drift along next to monsters that stretch on for around 600 square meters. This meant that sailing through such hazardous terrain would be a highly risky mission, one which only the most knowledgeable veterans of Antarctica's professionals could navigate who could rise to the challenge. No matter how eager any of the personnel were to jump into a submarine, even the best theories regarding how well the vessel would perform under such monstrous pressure were just that, theories. Whatever fears the team may have held melted away when they commenced their 3,000-foot plunge. The Reason at this watery chasm they located a jaw-dropping ecosystem brimming with wonderful organisms, such as the creature that they borrowed a name from the Star Wars films. Those that live in Antarctica will happily tell you that living in such intense and merciless conditions is not for everyone. Sadly, the majority of this hardy population knows little of what seems like another dimension underneath their feet where completely alien wonders thrive. According to Mark Taylor, who took part in the dive, within a square yard there is more life in the deep of the Antarctic than there is in the reefs of the Barrier Reef of Australia. How could such an inhospitable place be the home to such biodiversity? For one, the marine snow uncovered by the scientists under Antarctica went deeper than anything that dr. John Copley of the University of Southampton had witnessed throughout the entire Earth's seas. You might be wondering just what marine snow is. 
This is essentially a vital component of the seabed that permits life to thrive in such otherwise unlivable conditions. This much marine snow had something crucial to do with the wonderful ecosystem that the submarine crew had stumbled upon. To put it simply, the living substances which trickle down to the seabed from the higher reaches eventually turn into marine snow. This stuff then becomes one of the few forms of sustenance that the creatures that choose to live in such depths rely on. This sunlight-enriched food then provides the energy and nutrition to the organisms in these dark areas which are free of any kind of surface-level enrichment. Without marine snow, these animals could not survive if it wasn't for another kind of food. We now turn our attention to a separate but no less essential form of nourishment that the members of the Antarctic underworld enjoy, krill feces. You probably know that krill are the minuscule crustaceans that whales love to swallow in vast quantities. But their presence also cares for a less obvious group in the ocean. It is their droppings that transform the seabed from a barren wasteland into a murky home ideal for some organisms. You can bet that anything that makes it through the day in such unusual circumstances will appear out of this world. So, what exactly could one see if they happened to take a submarine below the Antarctic? Let's start with the Antarctic Sustar, which is the creature that one Star Wars fan felt would be better be named as the Death Star, or Labidiaster Annulatus in Latin. While this organism might be related to your average starfish, you would struggle to guess that if someone hadn't told you so. This is one bizarre creature, perhaps the weirdest in the ocean. Let's begin its description with its development. The Death Star could easily sprout around 50 appendages and its growth can extend beyond the size of a hubcap. If you had to look closely at this thing, you might notice the tiny pincers which coat its many arms surface which clamp closed whenever they bump into unsuspecting prey. While the Death Star might owe its life to Krill's bowel movements, that does not stop it from feeding on the tiny fellows. And that is not even the oddest part of the sinister Sustar. Fish are obviously the most competitive and dominant predators inside our planet's oceans, but not in this one. The Death Star is just one incredible difference in the hierarchy witnessed within Antarctica. You can bet that the majority of fish will stay away from the inhospitably cold temperatures of the South Pole. There is just a small number of fish types that could brave these chilling waters and live. With less competition from the outside world, the Antarctic Sustar has become an apex predator. But the divers were not simply gazing into what seemed like an alien world. They were being privileged with a rare glimpse into an Earth millions of years into past, where humans were just a potential species. During this ancient period, invertebrates were the kings and fed on the weaker creatures at their pleasure. Dr. Copley was sure that he was looking at a vision of what the ocean was like over 250 million years in the past. Then we have the Criodrico Antarcticus which shares the murky habitat with the Death Star within the Antarctic Ocean, also known as the Ice Dragonfish. This is a creature that has evolved in some incredible ways to beat the freezing temperatures. You might not believe it, 
but its blood is filled with antifreeze-like proteins that stop the ice dragonfish from becoming a popsicle. If you had to inspect its blood, you would be amazed to find that it had no color, given that this creature's veins are free of hemoglobin, the protein molecule that tirelessly carts oxygen throughout our human bodies. There was a greater goal to Dr. Copley and company's efforts that went beyond a stunning sightseeing adventure, however. While they came face to face with all manner of weird and wonderful sea creatures in a pioneering marine biology expedition, they wanted to learn some crucial coping mechanisms from them. Just how life manages to thrive in such crushing conditions beneath the Antarctic Ocean could easily inspire new developments in the team's conservation strategies across the South Pole. In an interview with the BBC, Dr. Copley spoke of how, on these dives, we watched the everyday lives of Antarctic deep-sea animals, helping us to understand them much better than studying specimens collected by nets or trawls from ships. And, it's, helping us to investigate how our own lives are connected to this remote yet fragile environment. This is certainly a delicate ecosystem, and the last thing that Dr. Copley wanted to do was disrupt its sensitive flow. But it isn't just the most out-of-the-way sections of the ocean that are an enigma. Many of the safer and warmer parts of our seas are still shrouded in darkness. Dr. Copley also wished to inspire further deep-sea dive projects in his counterparts across the world. If he could breach a mile deep into Iceberg Alley into one of the most remote and freezing spots in the world, there was nothing stopping anyone from reaching any place on Earth. All that it takes, according to Dr. Copley, is the right attitude. Man who married a sex doll finds new love with ashtray he took from a nightclub. A bodybuilder who married a sex doll last year claims he is now madly in love with an ashtray, and plans to give it an artificial vagina. Yuri Tolikko says he has moved on since his devastating split from Margot the doll and is building a new life. The 36-year-old from Kazakhstan made international headlines after tying the knot with doll at a ceremony attended by dozens of guests in November 2020. But the couple have called it a day, and Yuri has a smoking new love interest. The Kazakh Musalemin was recently captivated by the ashtray in a club and now hopes to equip it so they can get closely acquainted. He posted on Instagram, at first I just arranged a photo shoot with it. But then it began to attract me. I wanted to touch it again, smell it. I love its brutal scent the touch of metal on my skin. It's really brutal. I also like that it has a story, that it's not new, that it has served many people and continues to serve them. Yuri identifies as a pansexual, and can fall in love with a character, an image, a soul, just a person. He married the sex doll last year but their love didn't last. He explained all about his new relationship, saying, I liked it, the smell of it, the touch of metal on my skin. It's fantastic. I like the touch of sharp metal on my skin, it excites me so I think you can understand what attracts me to this ashtray. I have a special passion for objects, 
they have always been alive for me he added. This is certainly not the same as a person, these are completely different feelings. This is akin to how a violinist can love his violin which is 300 years old. But if Yuri wants to take future steps with the ashtray, he may need to get some legal advice. According to local media reports, his union with Margot officially stands. In Kazakhstan, the only requirements for a wedding to take are that both consenting parties have to be male and female and over 18 years old. A clue to their split could have come months before they tied the knot. Yuri decided to book Margot in for plastic surgery. Speaking before the wedding, he said, she has changed a lot. At first, it was hard to accept but I got used to it later on. It was at a real clinic with real doctors. When I presented her photo to the world, there was a lot of criticism and she began to develop a complex so we decided to have surgery. Welcome back, this is Misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts. Stay tuned. How to make a living on the internet and exactly how much you can expect to earn per follower, subscriber, or sponsored post. Two twenty-somethings enter a ring to settle their differences with a good old-fashioned fist fight. Normally, a public brawl like this might become a spectacle. This year, it made history. If you're under the age of 25, you may recognize this event as Logan Paul vs. KSI, an amateur boxing bout between two of YouTube's biggest stars. The fight garnered over a million viewers on YouTube's pay-per-view platform and 21,000 live spectators at the Manchester Arena, making it the fourth most-watched boxing match ever. Between ticket sales and sponsorship deals, rough estimates put the pair walking away with $50 million each. Not bad for two dudes who, to anyone outside the YouTube bubble, seem to have come out of nowhere. Of course, it's actually taken years of dedication for these influencers to make an event like this possible. Logan Paul, 24, has been making online videos for the past 14 years, KSI, 25, for the past decade. Deep down, we all want to be influencers, though social media has watered down the word's meaning, it still taps into something universal. We want people to listen to us and respect us. While Logan Paul and KSI are certainly outliers, achieving influencer status in your own niche is pretty doable. Here's how. The journey. Your journey to influence will be paved with money. There are four milestones worth considering. One making any money at all, one dollar per month. Two making an interesting amount of money. $500 per month. 3. Making a living, $2,000 per month. 4. Making a lot of money, $20,000 per month. Depending on your platform, 
the number of followers you need will differ but the ways to make money are the same. Running ads alongside your content. Sponsorship deals with brands. Direct donations and subscriptions. Hawking your own wares. Here's how many followers you'll need to hit each milestone. YouTube. The YouTube Partner Program is the platform's official monetization route. It lets creators run ads on their videos to earn money. You need 1,000 subscribers to be considered for the program. Once you're a partner and choose to display ads, you can earn roughly $1 per 1,000 views. With 1,000 subscribers, you might make enough to cover a cup of coffee a week if you post regularly. To hit $500 per month through ad revenue alone would require roughly 500,000 total video views per month. Posting two new videos a week, you'd need approximately 60,000 views on each. Subscribers don't directly translate to views, though, you can reasonably expect 20% of your subscriber base to watch each of your next videos so you'd need about 300,000 subscribers to reach this goal. This is a lot, and it typically takes at least a couple of years to reach. Once you're a partner and choose to display ads, you can earn roughly $1 per 1,000 views. Luckily, once you have around 20,000 subscribers, the world of influencer marketing starts to open up. Depending on your niche and the personal brand you cultivate, different types of companies may want to work with you. If your followers are students, you might be offered deals to promote lifestyle items like backpacks or productivity apps. At the bottom end, these deals might involve free products to test and review. At the top end, you will get a nice check, too. With roughly 50,000 subscribers, you can expect to receive $500 to $1,000 to try out a product and talk about it on video. If you're lucky, influencer marketing agencies will reach out to you. These deals may fall into your lap. If not, you can sign up for one of an increasing number of influencer marketing platforms, marketplaces that connect influencers with brands. With a bit of effort and roughly 30,000 followers, influencer marketing will let you hit $500 per month fairly easily. Reaching $2,000 per month is just a matter of gaining more followers. With 100,000 subscribers, you could easily charge $2,000 for a single sponsored video. $20,000 per month, however, is a different ball game. 100,000 subscribers might bring you $1,000 per month via ad revenue and $5,000 per month through two three sponsored videos. This sounds promising, but unfortunately sponsored videos don't scale. Three obviously sponsored videos in a month would definitely be noticed by your followers, and it might taint your relationship with them. With 500,000 subscribers, you can get to $20,000 per month through ads and the occasional brand deal. If you want to reach this goal sooner, you'll need to get creative. This typically involves creating a product or service to sell to your followers.
If you're in a skills-based niche, you can do very well by creating a paid online course for your followers. If not, creating branded merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hats, works too. Fitness guru Jeff Cavalier sells tailored training programs. Fashion vlogger Zoella has her own line of beauty products. Brothers Jake and Logan Paul each have their own clothing brands, as do many other popular vlogging personalities. Regardless of your niche, one of the quickest and easiest ways to multiply your income is to transfer your existing fan base to a new, and more lucrative, platform. Instagram Instagram doesn't have any official monetization features, so any money you make will be through external channels. Securing brand deals is the main way to monetize your Instagram influence. This becomes possible once you hit 5,000 followers. The payout at 5,000 followers isn't much, free product samples, or $50 if you're lucky, but it's a start. Instagram is the leading platform for influencer marketing in terms of volume, but market rates are slightly lower than YouTube. Justifiably so, scrolling through an Instagram feed demands less engagement than watching a YouTube video. If you have 100,000 Instagram followers, you can charge approximately $1,000 for a sponsored post. As a creator, you can get away with posting more sponsored content on Instagram than on YouTube. The Stories feature lets you create posts that disappear after 24 hours so there won't be a permanent record of your hash sponken. Using this together with normal sponsored posts, you can get away with posting twice as much sponsored content on Instagram as on YouTube. Hitting the $2,000 per month milestone is manageable with 100,000 followers and a few sponsored posts every month. At 50,000 followers, you might be able to secure deals for around $500 per post if you're lucky, but closer to 100,000 followers makes it more feasible. Hitting the $2,000 per month milestone is manageable with 100,000 followers and a few sponsored posts every month. $20,000 per month, once again, comes down to creating products and services to sell to your followers. That is, unless you're willing to wait until you have more than 1 million followers, at which point, sponsored posts become much more lucrative. Twitch Twitch has made monetization a core focus of its product, unsurprising, given that it was created in 2011, when influencer marketing was beginning to take off. While other platforms are built on interactions between followers and creators, Twitch distinguishes itself by allowing followers to interact with one another via a live chat box. This creates a sense of community that the platform exploits well. There are a few ways to make money on Twitch, starting with the affiliate program. You need only 50 followers to be considered for the program, which gives you access to three of Twitch's monetization features. One direct subscriptions followers can give you a monthly subscription fee of $4.99, $9.99, or $24.99 in return for vanity upgrades. 
2-bit revenue, followers can support you by spending bits, the platform's internal currency, to cheer you on during your stream. 3. Game Sales When followers buy a copy of the game you're streaming via your page, you receive 5% of the revenue. These are, in part, acts of performative loyalty. Subscribing early on to an up-and-coming streamer is the new discovering a band before they were cool. Your reward on Twitch is a badge of honor in emoji form next to your username. It enables other viewers in the live chat, and the streamer themselves, to see your level of devotion. At a small scale, direct subscriptions are the most reliable revenue stream. If you're reasonably entertaining, you can expect roughly 1% of your followers to subscribe, so 10,000 followers might make you around $500 monthly. This scales all the way to the top end, albeit with a decrease in the subscriber-follower ratio as your reputation grows. Once again, with a bit of creativity, you can find other ways to monetize your audience. Ninja, Twitch's most popular streamer makes $5 million per year from the platform, $3 million of which is through direct subscriptions. If you ever make it into the top 1-2% of streamers, you'll have the chance to become a Twitch partner. This lets you show ads on your stream. However, with ad blockers drastically reducing ad impressions, many streamers decide it's not worth the bother. Blogging this is a difficult one to pin down, as there's no single platform that dominates the blogosphere. Blogs are distributed across personal websites and platforms like Medium and WordPress. The landscape is made even more confusing by the fact that there's no default way to monetize a blog. The only real way to make money at small scale is through direct subscriptions. Patron is the most popular way to facilitate this, though other services are starting to pop up. There's also a growing movement, championed by groups like Substack, which empowers writers to start charging for their work as early as possible. How soon you can earn money depends on two things, the niche you're writing for, and how hard you push for donations or subscriptions. Some writers spend years building an audience before even thinking about money. Others start charging from day one. Getting a book deal is to bloggers what starting a clothing brand is to Instagrammers. Esteemed tech blogger Ben Thompson had a freemium model right from the start, one free article every week and a daily post exclusively for paid subscribers. Bill Bishop, a leading voice on China did the opposite. He wrote for free for six years before going fully paid. Both are now making very comfortable livings, directly supported by their readers. Alternative paths to make money are beginning to crop up. Medium now has paid memberships that give readers access to stories behind the platform's metered paywall, and writers earn a cut of the membership fees. The payout varies significantly. The top 50% of authors in the partner program earn money, with the top 10% earning over $100 per month. The top metered story in a given month typically generates $2,000 to $5,000. For hobbyists, 
Medium's solution is a pretty good deal. The recommendation system makes it possible for new writers to get eyes on their work from day one, and earning $500 to $2,000 per month is, with a bit of dedication, achievable. $20,000 per month is currently not, the top grossing writer in a month makes almost $10,000, but it's still early days, Medium began allowing writers to monetize last year. There's no playbook to hitting $20,000 monthly by blogging. The subscription model has done it for some, Ben Thompson and Bill Bishop via their sites, and soon Tim Urban via Patron but others have to look further afield. Getting a book deal is to bloggers what starting a clothing brand is to Instagrammers. Tim Urban gained notoriety through Wait But Why and is now writing a book. Eric Barker of Barking Up the Wrong Tree did the same, and Ben Allin just released math with bad drawings. Above a critical mass of popularity, advertising and sponsorships can be similarly lucrative. John Grubber's Apple blog, Daring Fireball, 2.5 million monthly visitors, has a single sponsor each week and generates roughly $35,000 per month. Once again, the niche matters, philosophy blog Slaterster Codex gets one-fifth of Daring Fireball's traffic but only generates one-tenth of its income via ads. Writing is a medium that's more about the message than the messenger so the culture around blogs is less accepting of clickbait. Blog advertising tends to be a bespoke affair. Instead of plugging into major ad networks, Google Ads, Carbon, serious bloggers typically run their own ad programs with a limited number of carefully selected companies. In part, this comes down to economics, daring fireballs income would drop by 80% using Google Ads. It's also a matter of aesthetics. Traditional display ads misalign incentives in favor of clickbait and ad visual clutter that pollute the creator's brand. These problems exist on other platforms too. Compared to video, however, writing is a medium that's more about the message than the messenger, so the culture around blogs is less accepting of clickbait. Centralized platforms, YouTube, Instagram, also have native ad formats that are less obtrusive than traditional display ads, reducing the issue of clutter. The subscription model addresses both of these problems and allows a more direct relationship between creators and their audiences, one that isn't mediated by brands. Paying for online content isn't yet a social norm but it's seen strong early adoption in the blogosphere and is starting to catch on elsewhere. YouTube, for example, rolled out its own subscription product this year. Now that you know what to do, it's time to pick your poison and get to work. Get ready to face your fair share of naysayers, though. There are definitely problems with the influencer ecosystem not least its effects on young people's mental health and on influencers themselves. I'm optimistic that we'll figure these out. We could dismiss the movement with jeers of 15 minutes of fame and famous for being famous. We shouldn't. The internet has taken power from traditional media gatekeepers. It's democratized fame, letting anyone achieve celebrity.
and in doing so, it has revealed a fundamental human truth, we each have a great deal of value to provide to others. All we need to do is share a part of ourselves with the world. We are asking for your support. You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.